Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the Indian Religions Podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, I have on the podcast, yet again, Martin Gluckman, researcher at uh, the University of Cape Town and the director of the Sanskrit Research Institute. Um, after our last podcast, we were chatting and um, it, it was abundantly clear to me that uh, we'd barely scratch the surface <laughs> on the, the fascinating projects in which uh, Martin is engaged. Uh, and so I've invited him back to speak about uh, um, these amazing things. So, Mark, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Raj. Thank you so much for having me back. And it was so wonderful to speak to you yesterday. Yes, indeed. Uh, a fascinating conversation that I wanted to share with our audience. Um, so let's start with this figure named Panini, a very important name in the Sanskrit world. Maybe say a, a word of introduction in terms of, of who this figure is. Um, and then tell us about your work related to his work and the implications thereof. That's really wonderful that you've asked about Panini. So um, most of us who study Sanskrit outside of India, um, we will go quite systematically through one of the grammars like MacDonald or Whitney or Agnes, um, McComas Taylor. Um, he uses Agnes, which I really appreciate. So Thomas Agnes um, from the Maharishi University in Iowa, um, they've used that introduction to Sanskrit. And generally, Panini is in your awareness. And a lot has been sort of um, put in the media, sort of um, uh, about NASA and Sanskrit grammar and Panini, and people might have heard about Chomsky mentioning um, Panini had an influence on his universal grammar, and um, people who have done general linguistics would also know about the massive contribution of Panini. But it's not something that you actually encounter. Um, whereas if one studies in a gurukul in India, like my dear late friend Lakshmi Tatachar, he was a great Sanskrit from Melkote, the first thing that hits you from about age five is recitation of probably um, the Lago Siddhanta Kalmudi. Um, and you're starting with Vridir, Adaich, Aden Gonaha. You're actually um, memorizing without even knowing what you're memorizing. You start to memorize this extremely um, cryptographic um, world of Panini. Now, for me as a computer scientist, um, Panini was like a dream come true because here we had something from a few hundred BC, which was looking like um, a computer language. It had operations like if, when this condition happens, do that. And I was intrigued about Panini, but I knew that I had to sort of learn the basics of Sanskrit before I could actually dive into it. And very few Western universities that would be teaching Sanskrit would cover Panini. So who was Panini? Um, well, once again, like um, characters like Vyasa or Krishna um, or Arjuna, it's very hard to know if they were historically um, living characters, um, even though there are some Chinese records, I believe, describing um, someone called Panini, um, and there were some records describing, but we don't have any archaeological definitive record of it being either one person, a mythical person, a pseudonym, 
or a series of people. Um, and I would probably um, safely go for the latter, that possibly Panini was not one person. It was really like a movement. Remember, there were great universities in Pakistan at the time. Now, this is all happening in Pakistan. Um, and this is really something very great. I actually would like to make a pilgrimage to um, the birth, supposed birthplace of Panini in Pakistan. There is a village there. Um, and um, to actually just be there, you know, because it had such a great influence. So there was this, either it was a person or it was a series of people, it was a movement, you could say the Paninian movement, um, because a lot of these names are kind of like plays. And if I remember correctly, um, it's like, it's, it's a kind of, um, it's a bit of humor built into the whole story of Panini. And the first humor is the name. It could mean something like son of a shopkeeper. Now, what would a shopkeeper be um, doing um, as the father of the greatest intellectual contribution to human civilization in the ancient world? I think it was, um, I don't have the quotes, but one of the great linguists um, of, the, of, the, um, of the last century said Panini was the greatest you know, intellectual contribution of the ancient world. And um, after a year of climbing the mountain of Panini, I definitely found that. So the identity is someone that was possibly in Pakistan, possibly multiple people. There's no doubt that Panini is one of the most um, significant subjects in the Sanskrit literature, and not just in the literature, but it's allowed the literature to stay stable and constant and frozen with one standardized grammar, 2,000 standardized rule, roots, basically. You've got around 2,000 roots, you've got around 4,000 rules, and every word that you and I would ever converse in, in Sanskrit, can be rendered by knowing those 2,000 roots and those 4,000 rules. And you don't really need all 4,000 rules. A lot of the rules are rather obtuse. Um, they're rules that you might only use in very rare occurrences with a dual version of a, a rare word. Um, and many of the rules will deal with that. So I would say perhaps uh, mastering a quarter um, of the 4,000 rules, um, you would be in good stead to be able to render. And this is really where the um, Lago Siddhanta and the Siddhanta comedies come in. We'll talk about where those fit in. But so yes, Panini was in Pakistan. And I'll just, um, in introducing Panini, um, there's a story of the death of Panini, which is very, very interesting. And it's linked to the logo of Sri, our, our Sanskrit Research Institute. So you'll see in our logo, we have two lions there. Now, these are not the British lions of the British Empire. Um, these are the lions that ate, inverted commas, I say, Panini, because the story, and it's such a beautiful story, goes like this. Panini was sitting under a beautiful tree, probably a pipal tree, or a banyan tree, and he was sitting there teaching his students, and there was a roar of a lion, and all the students scattered away and rushed away, but just Panini was left, and he started to um, analyze the grammar of the sound of the lion, rather than run away. And of course, Panini was eaten by the lion, and that's how Panini apparently died. Now, what does that story tell us? Often we have to reverse engineer these stories. What the story tells us is that sound is very important. This Nada Brahma. Um, now, there's a saying in, in, in the commentaries on the Panini Sutras that basically just missing one letter, like adding one additional letter to a sutra, a grammatical sutra, is seen as something like really terrible, the most terrible thing you could do. Um, it's like the most um, heinous thing you could possibly do. So the incredible thing about Panini is it is the most compressed literature on earth. Um, it is 
intellectually something that anyone who is liking logic and there is a theory i'm not an expert in this but maybe we could look into some scholars to come and talk about this there's a theory that panini influenced the early development of um, pre-computation and computer science by influencing the logicians babbage and so forth who created the early computational um, methods basically the binary systems and all that. Now, if we look at Panini from modern computer science level, if we just were to sit and go through the sutras, you've got rules. You've got rules that are acting when certain conditions are met. You've got constants and you've got variables. Um, anyone who's done even the basics of computer science 101 will see that Panini is giving you a language that can be rendered in real time using just the roots, and this means nouns, verbs, any other uh, adverbs, adjectives, any other uh, forms of words that you might be using. Any word that anyone ever uses in Sanskrit can be rendered through Panini's incredible engine. So I would call it like the first software ever. I would even uh, be inspired to create a software development language called Panini because this contribution is um, pre-computation, but it allows you to use your brain, which is a computer. If you read um, the books um, like Kurzweil, Ray Kurzweil, he's um, wrote this beautiful book, How to Create a Mind. And he talks about these parallel circuits that our brains are doing right now when I'm speaking to you. There's not just one thing happening in your mind. One part of your, uh, one process is analyzing the sound. One is anal analyzing the one part of the grammar. The other part is ana analyzing the nuance. There might be multiple. So we've got multiple parallel chips. Now, Pianini is adapted very well for the human brain. And it was memorized. Um, when we built our Pianini research tool, the first thing we did was we got recordings and we got permission to use recordings of the chanting of the entire Pianini um, sutras. So you can actually go and view all the sutras and hear them as you are studying them. So this is the introduction to Panini. We know that he or this movement um, or she, it could have been, um, just like with William Shakespeare, we don't definite, definitively know the identity. But this, um, this um, you could say, movement called Panini was most likely in Pakistan, um, which, of course, India did not have the borders of um, the post-colonial um, India. It basically... Um, was kind of kingdoms and there were certain kingdoms there and certain universities very long before the earliest um, European university, which was Bologna, um, India had these incredible universities which were all destroyed in different invasions um, through India over many centuries. Um, so we once did a documentation of un universities in ancient India. And as you probably know, many of these traditions were in places like Takshilal, Charaka, Sushruta, many of these great um, sages or movements. They could have been movements also, to, to be very fair, because we don't have the historical evidence of one individual. Um, so this was Panini. And when I started um, studying Sanskrit, it was in the back of my mind. Um, I have to study Panini. And I kept saying to McComas, let's do Panini. So when I got to my final year, the second year of the postgraduate um, um, diploma I was doing with McComas at ANU, I said, let's do Panini. Now, guess what? <laughs> McComas is still doing Panini. Um, and this is about um, four or five years on. And he writes to me frequently saying, uh, Martin, I'm using your Panini research tool daily, which really um, has moved me because when my teacher um, is 
appreciating and benefiting from what I've done, I think um, my life is complete and I can now um, have my Mahasamadhi basically. So what is this tool like and who might use it? Tell us a bit about that process. Yeah, sure. I would love to tell you about it. So what we did with the tool is we collated as much information that we could get about each sutra. Now, remember, there's around 4,000 sutras, and we basically um, took information from the Mahabhashya. We took information from the different um, uh, uh, commentaries, you could say. So Panini's pro- the, the Panini Sutras, very few people actually study it face on. Everyone gets a commentary, basically a derived version of it. And the most common con- commentary in the South um, uh, that you could you could call them commentaries. Yeah, they are commentaries because they basically they take an excerpt of Panini and then they have discussions and basically they have their own order and sequence of teaching you these um, de- derivations of the four thousand rules. So the lagu lagu, as you know, is the opposite of of guru light. So it's the small Siddhanta comedy. The thing is, like theoretically, with the lagu Siddhanta comedy, you could basically master Panini's thought process and most of the rules, but a real black belt um, of the ultimate Dan, you know, like that you get, like Dr. Ramanath Sharma, he is from a family of Paninian scholars, his father, grandfather, he always jokes and says we were copper um, cotton pickers. The, the, um, he says, like, our family were picking cotton. And that's like a metaphor in the tradition of we were in the fields learning the Vyakarana. So I had the incredible um, association of Dr. Ramanath Sharma, who is basically um, someone that I would say you have to um, have on the um, podcast. His stories, his um, he is basically holding that essence, that tradition, the thousands of years stretching back to Panini is being carried in his family tradition. Um, his father was Padma Shri. No doubt he should win whatever award India can give for his life work. He has written a his own commentary on the Ashtadhyayi and a translation into English. Um, in I think it's in five volumes, if I, if I, if I am remembering correctly. Um, it was decades of work that he has put into. And what I did is um, I had people like Ramanath Sharma um, as my teacher giving workshops in Oroville. Um, And then what I did is whenever we did something, we wanted to share it. So we streamed it, we recorded it, and we invited as many people to attend as possible. And that was a residential workshop. And I remember once again, the funny story, because I remember Yesterday, I was saying the gods are laughing when you study Sanskrit. Well, when we did the Ramanath Sharma workshop, the first one in Oroville, guess what happens? We had this incredible workshop. I think about 40 people had booked. The day before the heavens opened, like never have ever happened before. I think it was the great floods. So people had to literally cross the ocean to get to Oroville. They had to actually come in a boat. We had people arriving in boats. So we had this kind of filtering process. Now, Panini is already a filtering process. Your average Sanskrit student who does, say, a degree at Oxford um, or in a good Leipzig or a good a, a Berlin, a good German university, is not going to really double with Panini. It's going to be something that they'll do in their graduate um, or post or PhD level if they're going to get into it. And there's very few teachers in the West who've mastered it. 
Um, and Ramanath Sharma being at University of Hawaii being one of the exceptions. But to get to this workshop, you had to literally get a boat. There were actually people who needed boats to come. And Tamil Nadu became um, completely flooded. And I was drenched, everyone was drenched. So we sat there on day one, not knowing who's gonna come. And there was about 25 people who actually made it and didn't cancel. And we had the most phenomenal um, series, I think it was five days with Dr. Sharma, one day for each of his volumes, you could say. And the incredible spirit and dedication to this incredible subject. I, of all the things I've studied in my life, um, I think I put Panini up there with quantum physics and um, the deepest sort of cosmology and philosophy you, one could study, you know, me, deepest med, medical discoveries. It's really one of the greatest things. Anyone out there listening, study Panini, um, find a teacher and do it. Peter Schaff is running courses at the moment um, through his beautiful Sanskrit library. Um, McComas, I believe, is teaching it in for his graduate students. Um, Dr. Sharma, I'm not sure if he's still teaching, but you could approach him and maybe he would do more workshops. But all of his um, 10 days are on YouTube, we've put that. So what we did with this tool is we went out there and we said, what is there? Because there was not one, it was the same with the dictionary. There wasn't a one meta dictionary where we brought in many resources. And when you're studying Panini, you need to look from many angles. It's a very complex, obtuse subject um, that can become, it can become very easily confusing. And you need to see many different views and opinions on each sutra. And it's kind of like following a maze. You would kind of follow one sutra and it would lead you to the next sutra. And then it would be depending on three or four other sutras. So um, we've given this research tool where you can just type in the sutra number or search for a keyword in the research tool. And you will get everything that we could get our hands on, including the chanting. Um, we've got the different um, commentaries, um, the classical ones that you would learn in any Gurukul. And then we've got some contemporary information. There was a beautiful project done um, by um, Katre that he gave permission. It was um, in 1987. Um, Sumitra M. Katre did this incredible translations and we got permission um, from his publisher and from the author um, to do that. There was a lovely website called Sanskrit Documents, which had also done a collation and we got permission. And what we've done is we've just really, it's almost looks, if you look at the site, it's, it's sanskritdictionary.com slash panini. Um, it almost looks like a programmer's manual for Java or for C++ basically. Um, it's very familiar for anyone who's done computer programming, but what you're not programming a, um, a software, you're programming a language and you're programming everything that you could possibly say. And Panini has this incredible nuances. Firstly, of the first thing it does is it gives you this um, Maheshwara Sutrani. It gives you the alphabet, not in the, the, the sequence that we learn, the but it actually gives you a whole cryptographic sequence um, where the alphabet is given in a series of embedded rules that have terminators that basically are very confusing until you understand them. So Panini is probably the most modern Sanskrit work technically. Um, it's something that needs much more recognition than it has. The great geniuses of our time, like Chomsky um, and many other great linguists, have recognized Panini. They have um, extolled it and they've spoken greatly about it. But because it's been very difficult to find good teachers outside of the traditions, of course, you can come to Pondicherry or Pune or Kashi, and you certainly can find teachers. And those teachers 
would need you to sort of prove that you're really, really serious and willing. Um, in the Western universities, there are now uh, more and more courses on Panini. And we're also hoping by producing these tools and putting things out that we'll create more demand because I think anyone who's interested in Sanskrit, who's interested in linguistics has to study Panini. Um, I went intensely into it. Um, it's a universe. Uh, McComas and I sort of journey together and he's still on the journey with it. It's probably a 12 year journey if you really want to get to mastery level of um, Panini. I kind of got to beginner level and I could, if you take like a Sanskrit word, I could render it through Panini's rules. You see, if you go um, with the modern grammars like Agnes, he will just say it's Naraha. Um, so the first person singular of the masculine uh, stem Nara man is Nara and um, Panini will not uh, say remember Nara, he'll say remember that for this particular short A masculine noun, these are your rules and these rules are applied and you, and you will go through this whole beautiful process um, and eventually you will end up with the same thing, Nara, but you didn't have to remember Nara, all you had to do was know the rules and when you've got those rules you can basically apply them to any stem. Um, so it's quite a powerful way of learning language. There's no other language that's taught on earth like this. It's one of those things we were talking yesterday about the things that Sanskrit has, it has the greatest corpus of literature. Um, and and the, I wanna just stress these things because often the Hindu nationalistic movements, they often go and exaggerate things that are not evidence-based or not factual, but there's beautiful factual things about Sanskrit. You don't need to exaggerate. You just need to repeat the facts. The facts are, Panini is this incredible rendering, interpretive um, computer language of rendering a language from roots using 4,000 rules, 2,000 roots and 4,000 rules. No other language on earth has a system like that. I've studied Hebrew, I've studied Japanese. I learned around 10 languages for basic conversation. I did old Greek and old Persian. No other language has this like Sanskrit. So everyone um, on earth can be proud that there is this intellectual creation and it's really allowed for the literature to stay constant and that you could derive the same meaning of a text from 2000 years ago um, uh, as you could from one 300 years ago. Now, when I did old Greek, I would, you'll see if you look up at my library, I've got like old um, Greek and old Latin textbooks. Here's from Alpha to Omega looking down on me, uh, class, one of the most wonderful Greek textbooks. No one even knows for sure how the different Greeks were, like the, uh, the Greek Greek that was um, spoken in Athens, for example, was actually pronounced. And there are many gray areas. With Sanskrit, we know how it was pronounced because we have the Shiksha tradition of saying, the sound is resonating here in the um, Kanta position. It is in the Oshta position. It is in the Danta position. And it tells how many matra, how many beats it is. And it describes that this is the blink of an eyelid. So you've actually got this universal language using the human body as a musical instrument. Um, so the things that one can derive is that Panini is this incredible um, scientific achievement in linguistics. Um, the other one to be very proud of is that Sanskrit has the largest corpus of extant literature um, and pre-Gutenberg, basically. And we're looking at around 10 million manuscripts that are out there. This is a phenomenal, phenomenal contribution. 
and then the synonyms. I could go on. But these things I just encountered by creating these tools. When I was creating the tools, it allowed me to discover the wonderment, um, the wonder that is Sanskrit, basically. So that's the Panini tool that we created. And once again, um, this, the great um, joy has been getting feedback from different universities and different scholars saying that we're using it and we're enjoying it. Um, we occasionally get people reporting minor corrections and errors, which we really appreciate. And they're all living tools that we want to keep updating. There's actually a new version of the Panini Research Tool, probably a year ahead, where we want to add another data set that will be extremely valuable on the derivations. Um, so examples of derivations. Um, we need to get permission for that data. Um, generally, people have been very open with sharing, um, where we were speaking yesterday a bit about the open access movement that's starting. I think that's a very important movement because all the rishis were open access. If you read um, the Brahat Parashara Hora Shastra, the first verses are saying, I give this for the benefit of mankind. It's not I give this so I can patent it and make a buck off it. It's not that I give this so I can make a profit from the royalties on the book. I give it from the benefit of mankind. But perhaps the economic model, you know, we've had money for 5,000 years, maybe the economic models of sort of having these kingdoms and the kings that were the benefactors, um, that were bas uh, basically, uh, I mean, that were, were the donors and the supporters, they were basically financing the, the um, Ritviks and the Purohits and the Pandits out there. So that is the Panini research tool and um, feel free to use it and give us feedback, anyone out there who's listening. It's at sanskritdictionary.com slash Panini, P-A-N-I-N-I. I want to move on to a, a, another tool that um, that you've put together. But before I do, I have a quick question about Panini's monumental achievement. Is it such that he was able to discern um, uh, the uh, systemization innate to the language, or is it such that he was able to implement one? So. Panini froze the grammar of the language at the time um, and gave the Bible of Sanskrit grammar that was adopted. And that's why everyone who came after Panini accepted that as the version 1.0 or whatever version they were up to. But that's the version 1.0 of Panini. Um, there's a lot of philosophical debates in the commentaries. You know, from the traditionalist perspective, it is the word of God. It has come from a divine channel. And this is, everything is perfect. But if we look at it from a critical eye, it's a mixture. It's basically very much like a software standard that has been created produced like now we've got the text encoding initiative they've got their current version and it's never perfect it's always um basically the best at that time now panini was so good that it was never revised but what panini does say in the sutras of panini there is a sutra and i can give you the reference you can put it um in the podcast notes um there is a sutra that basically says this is the um the tail of, or we could call it the head of a very, very long tradition that's stretching way before me. But all of the people he mentions, there's no literature extant. So it was, Panini superseded everything that came before Panini, but there was something before Panini. It wasn't just revealed. It was basically frozen at that point and everyone accepted it. 
the sort of, you know, this calling Sanskrit the Deva Bhasha and all that, um, actually Panini calls it Bhasha, the language, if, if I remember correctly. Um, and that's also because that was what was used in these scholarly and literary communities at the time, just like Latin was used in Europe um, it, at one point, a few centuries ago, all of the academics were using Latin as their academic language, irrespective of if they were speaking a different form of German, French, um, or Italian, Latin was the scholarly language, um, that was the fashion. Um, so Sanskrit became the scholarly language for all kinds of works, uh, poetry, literary works. The, 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 the um, project I touched on yesterday called Sanskrit Archive, that's kind of going to give you a bird's eye view of what's out there. What are we talking about? What's interesting is we found Jainism and Buddhism are around 22% of the literature, um, the ancient literature um, in Sanskrit, Prakrit and Pali from the NCC. Um, so we have to ask the question, why? Well, firstly, it, it's, there might be different answers. I'm not, I'm not expert to answer. I was having the discussion with a colleague about that. One reason might be that they got writing early on and that's why there was so much literature. Like if you got writing early on in Canada, you would have more literature than Mexico who got it after Canada, for example. Um, you would have like 10 times more, you know, because you had more time to produce more output. And the other argument is because they were liturgical religious works, Jainism and Buddhism are both religions, there was this um, idea of promoting the philosophies and they, they, they therefore wanted to duplicate the ideas as much as possible, like one would expect to find a Bible in every hotel room. Um, you go to a hotel room, room um, around the world, you might just find a Bible in most of the um, hotels around the world. So in the same way. Um, but those are debates that are the beauty of working with the data science perspective and the computational linguistic perspective is we can start to ask these incredible questions. Um, we've never had a way of visualizing the extant Sanskrit literature computationally till today. Um, there have been projects that are attempting it, like I said, the National Mission on Manuscripts, but there's too much noise and too little signal at the moment. We need strong signal and less noise in all of these projects. Like the incredible DCS project that Oliver Helvig did was all signal and no noise because he basically, um, he did the tagging himself. So there was a quality control and he selected the corpus and um, he structured it in a very systematic way. He created a tagging tool basically for Sanskrit tagging and um, grammatical tagging. So that data is extremely valuable and that's what we've built some of our projects on. Um, so to answer your question, these are, um, these debates, it's, I, I, I don't know if you've looked into the, um, the, the phonological, um, philosophical debates in the Sanskrit tradition. So they say that, for example, um, they're saying like all the words, all the sounds come out of ah. Um, and then the whole, you know, there's these philosophical debates that, and they were saying that basically ah is like the beginning of everything and the whole alphabet. And then from the alphabet expands all the roots and from the roots expands the grammar and from the grammar roots and alphabet, you have a language. So there are these incredible sort of mythological um, constructs. And then when we look at it critically, we look more rationally and we say, okay, um, there was a language before Panini's language, and that's the Vedic grammar. Panini, um, well, touches upon the Vedic grammar, but the grammar that Panini describes in great detail is the classical grammar. And anyone who's read the Vedas, 
um, Rig Veda will see that there are different grammatical rules. There's rules related to your Sarita, your Udata, and your Anudata, your accents in the Rig Veda, and there's many other accents in the other Vedas um, that use the accent system. Um, what's interesting is the San and Khoi languages have an accent system um, that they still preserve, where Sanskrit lost its system of accents. And in the accented grammar, the accent can change the meaning of the word. So based on the tonology, you can have different meanings. Um, Panini does touch upon that, but it's not a Vedic grammar. Uh, we don't have a, a Panini-like work for the Vedic grammar. We, ha we have to derive the Vedic grammar from uh, works um, that are basically com commentaries that came on the Vedic literature and then on the tradition of chanting the Vedic literature. And this even gray areas in the Vedic grammar where we're not 100% sure if you read McDonald's Vedic grammar, uh, which we also digitized, um, it's got sections where there's a debate. It's not, it's not crystal clear. And that's why the translation of works like the Rig Veda are very subjective. Um, it's not so easy to translate the Rig Veda. Even um, what was her name, that incredible Russian, um, I've got the book here, uh, this incredible book. Tatiana um, Elizarenkova, you might know her work. Uh, she's probably one of the greatest Western um, translators of the Vedic language. But even there, I remember reading where she is debating this, could, it could be like this, it could be like that. Um, but once again, the Rig Veda is being used as a kind of meditative um, sort of uh, method. It's a tra transcendental method. If you ever go to any of these yajnas, you will feel that you're going into an altered, almost like a trance space, like in the San and the Khoi people, they would um, use music, the Sekhan Kori and the traditional instruments, and they would go into these trance spaces. They were very common um, uh, in this, this era. And um, the Vedic chanting tradition is one of the most beautiful. Um, it's been recognized by UNESCO. And, um, but Panini is not really going into the Vedic um, realm. It's something that there's still a lot of work to be done on the, on the Vedas. Um, it's the most mystical, most mysterious, and most um, misunderstood part of the Sanskritic tradition. Speaking of chanting and speaking aloud, certainly one can't study or appreciate Sanskrit without the, the, the spoken dimension. Um, you have a speech, a speech tool, do you not? Uh, that's actually, a, um, yes, exactly. So um, the World Sanskrit Conference came along in 2015 in Bangkok. And I um, had been having this idea to do a text-to-speech engine for Sanskrit. Now, the interesting thing of a lot, as I said yesterday, what we would do is we would first survey before embarking on any journey. I'd first see if someone has made this journey before. And if they've made it successfully, I would not embark upon the journey. Now, CDAC um, in uh, India had supposedly received a very large grant and was meant to produce a text-to-speech engine for Sanskrit. But when I contacted them and tried to uh, follow the papers and the URLs, nothing was actually working. Now, what happens often um, with sort of these large projects is there'll be a grant, um, some research will happen, but nothing will really come into the public domain, or it will come and then it will disappear, it will get shelved when the grant runs out because there's no sort of institute, um, there's no institutional budget for sustaining the project. The Digital Library of India was one of those projects that was taken down um, 
and then sort of there were issues with it and then it was mirrored on archive.org and we also made a mirror of it that was half a million um, works that were scanned throughout India over many, many years. And that was 32 terabytes of data. We made a mirror of that and we've put that in the public domain. And then um, Carl Malamed, he mirrored it from our mirror and also um, uh, some other sources. He put it onto the um, archive.org. So it's there for all uh, mankind. But basically, um, um, we started to think that we should get computers to speak Sanskrit. And the reason we um, thought it'd be a good idea is that the phonology is very consistent in Sanskrit, classical Sanskrit. Um, the Vedic, of course, has got more nuances of the accents. Um, and what I did is I did a survey. Uh, there was nothing out there in the public domain that could be used. And then we contacted the German Institute of Artificial Intelligence. There had been a PhD student who had worked on Hindi. And my logic was like this. Well, Hindi is pretty close to Sanskrit. It's obviously got some phonological differences, like you say yog, not yoga. You say Ayurved, not Ayurveda. But um, the similarities were, let's say, 94% and up. So what I did is I took the source code in Java of the Hindi text-to-speech engine, and we rewrote the rules to... Um, adapt it for Sanskrit. It actually worked really well. Um, it seems to recite um, Sanskrit texts extremely well. If you go to our dictionary and on the top right, you click on um, uh, the, you'll see there's an icon, an audible icon, an ear. If you click on that and you will get a sound next to each word. And also we have that in many of our tools and um, that we're building. Basically, you can click the word and hear it. So those are not recordings. That is the computer doing exactly what you are doing once you've learned um, the rules of pronunciation of a language. Um, so the computer is actually putting together the sounds and then gluing it together as a word. So that is our Sanskrit text-to-speech tool. And we're happy to offer that to anyone who wants it. It's in the public domain and it, the tool is there to be used. Um, so there was some collaboration from the Mary TTS people at DFKI, the uh, German Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Um, so once again, we were standing on the shoulder of giants. We were using all these incredible contributions. And then using my kind of guerrilla strategy of solving problems sideways and forward at the same time, not just you know, doing it from zero, but looking what's already been done and then sort of incorporating that into our, um, our process. So that was in 2015 and it's being used daily by people, particularly people in remote areas who don't have immediate access to a first language or a second language Sanskrit speaker. They've got our dictionary, they, they want to hear the word and um, they can now click on it and hear it. Fantastic. You've also done some work with uh, the Indus Valley script, have you not? And, and before you dive into the work, maybe say a word or two about that script. Brilliant. Um, so the Indus script is another one of those incredible enigmas that one encounters when one enters this um, tapestry of the Sanskritic Indic South Asian journey. Um, it's very mysterious. It doesn't have a Rosetta Stone. We know that it was um, from parts of India. That's mostly the Northwest along um, the um, border with Pakistan. And it was found in um, sites, of course, it, the very famous ones are the Mohenjo-Dara and the Harepan sites in Pakistan. Um, but it also stretches. We've actually got a map that we, we drew of all the sites um, where there were archeological finds and it stretches all over 
um, South Asia. There's something in Yemen. Um, you've got mostly in the northwest of India, and you've got um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and even parts of Iran. Um, those where where we had known Indo sites. Now, the Indo civilization is one of the most studied and um, the most documented because it was extremely, extremely old. The pre-Harappa is going back to around 7,000 BC. Um, and then you've got the early Harappa, which is around five and a half thousand to three, three, 3,300 BC, um, going on to 2,800 BC. The mature is around 2,450 BC, um, to uh, going into the late Harappa, which is 1700 BC. And then you've got the post Harappan um, and then Iron Age India, that's around 600 um, BC. And then um, sort of terminating. And the, the whole speculation is there was a major climatic event um, that impacted the end of some speculate the eruption of Santorini. Um, I'm not an expert on the sort of paleoscience, but there are many papers and um, a lot of this is sort of a bit blurry, but we know that there was these glyphs, characters or seals. Now, not everyone calls it a script. Some call it the endos seals and some call it the endos script, depending on if you're in the camp that this is writing or this is not writing. The arguments for the writing um, camps are that sometimes you have the bunching of the letters. It was written from right to left, if I remember correctly. Um, sometimes they're bunching. Um, there were certain characteristics that resemble writing. And then there were equal arguments of it not being um, writing. And those arguments were looking at the frequency, the number of characters, and the combinations of characters. Now, what we did is we um, tried to crack it. No one has cracked it. I'm not sure if anyone ever will crack it. I always have a standing joke in our office. When someone brings a psychic, often you have these sort of seers um, who claim to be psychics. I just have one test for them. Um, uh, someone came to my office and he had um, been doing a radio show with a top German psychic. Uh, and I said, okay, I have just one question for her. That's all. It will solve um, a year of my work. And I said, I just want to know what was the Indus script or seals? Tell me what it was. No psychic to date has been able to give me an answer. They usually avoid the question and just say, I can't answer that. Now, hang on a second. If they really do have this, um, this ability to see the past perfectly, they should be able to give a very clear and con concrete answer. So this is a great test. If anyone wants a litmus test for psychics, just say, what was the Indus script? It hasn't been solved, unlike the hieroglyphs, which were solved due to the Rosetta Stone. We don't have a Rosetta Stone. Hopefully we will find one. Maybe we will find it in Iran or Afghanistan. Um, maybe we will go on an expedition with your podcast and look for it. But till date, there is no um, parallel um, work with the seals. Now, there are different camps. There's the camp from Akshor Papola, who has done the most incredible work um, of basically saying it is one thing. There's the camp of Mahadevan saying it is another thing. There's the camp of Farmer and Witzel saying it is another thing. Um, I am not of their level of expertise. I'm still only a blue or orange belt in Sanskrit. I don't have um, the qualifications to give a scholarly opinion. So what we did was something very simple. We said, okay, let's isolate and trace every unique characters. So there's around 400 odd characters. So we traced in Coral Draw every unique character. The reason we traced them is most of the photographs are still under copyright. So we could not get permission from the um, copyright holders to publish them. So we took the 
um, the seals or the, the, um, the actual um, photographs and we traced it and created a new derived work um, from the photograph. So it's out of copyright. And then what we did in our post, I'll share it with you also, you can share it with your listeners. We basically just very innocently, like a child's mind would do it. And a lot of the greatest discoveries like Einstein have been having that kind of child mind likeness. So all we did was we grouped them based on what they resembled. So the first group, if you look, um, I'm going to share my screen actually. Um, oh, okay, I can't share. Maybe I could share the screen and you could just see it while I'm talking about it. It would be quite quite interesting for you visually. Um, so the um, the first, if you look on the left side of that poster and we'll share this, this poster, it's in the public domain, you'll see that we just took the, um, the symbols that look uh, human-like or man-like or woman-like. And you'll see that um, if, we, if we basically go in, we have, um, of course, we have something that looks like certainly a person. If I said to you, draw a person, you would probably draw it exactly like it was drawn in this um, few thousand years um, BC. And well, what would this be? This could be a person with something. This is certainly a person with a bow. This could be two people. This could be um, a person with some other device on them. And this is certainly a person with a bow and an arrow. Um, this is a person with some other thing with half of something. This is a person maybe in a river or um, I don't know. Um, this is just my imagination. But we all we did was we grouped them. Of course, many scholars had done this in academic papers, but nothing was done in a poster form. So our idea of this poster was it goes up in all the classrooms around the world and the students can just meditate and reflect on this. Certainly some looked like fish. We know they were on a river. There must have been fish. What is this flying fish doing here? That's really odd. Some look like birds. Um, these are very much bird-like. Now this, what you're starting to probably um, deduce is this could sort of go along the argument of Farmer and Witzel, who are saying that these were actually seals that were denoting property. Um, of course, unfortunately, people were property in these times. You did have slaves, um, or you had soldiers or mercenaries and so forth. And this was, these were, these were characteristics of this time. You certainly had fish. You certainly had um, different kinds of fish, could be a tiger fish here. I don't know about winged fish, I don't know. Maybe we've um, something, but you certainly had birds and they were eaten. So fish and birds were definitely eaten. We know from the archeological record, most definitely had dogs. This is a very dog-like character. So it, it could be language. And here we've got the numerical like characters. And then of course, on the second, this is a, a huge wall poster. And we've also put frequencies and you'll see it goes from green. So the ones that are more frequent, are in green. So we've really very innocently presented this. We, what we've done is nothing really new. It's just the way that we've formatted it and packaged it for the mind of the viewer. And here we've actually got the original seals and we give the measurement. You can see it's only two centimeters. It's allowed around this size by this size. And of course, we've just got the question mark ones where we don't actually know. I mean, this looks like, who knows? It could be a drum of sorts, actually, now that I look at it again. Um, but some of these are very, very unusual shapes. So we kind of wanted to produce the poster as a kind of meditation. Um, the nice thing is there's a finite number of seals. Um, the beauty here is you can go to these sites, and if you've got this poster in your pocket or on your phone, you can really start to sort of feel it out. Um, I feel this is one of the great contributions. There is a speculation that Brahmic script, the Brahmi, I was just looking at the oldest extant Sanskrit manuscript, which is this fragmented manuscript with this incredible story where the manuscript got divided between England and Germany because of the war and little pieces of the manuscript on the British Museum and little pieces are in Berlin and some got stuck in East Germany and some got stuck in West Germany. Um, 
you might want to have um, um, some of those uh, scholars that are experts in that manuscript on. It's quite a fascinating tale um, um, to basically um, talk about. But basically, um, there are these um, these incredible um, stories attached to the um, to the the Indus script. Um, for me, I don't think it's something we're going to solve. It's like saying, um, looking at the historicity of Buddha. You know, can we find evidence of a person? You know, the person Buddha. Um, that's a debate. You know, so there's these kind of things that we have to um, we have to take the traditionalistic view, and then of course India is going to have. Um, we always say in Judaism, if you have um, you know, a few Jews in a room, you're going to have hundreds of different, you know, viewpoints. And in India, it's the same. There's so many different um, opposing viewpoints. But the beauty, beauty of India is this incredible tolerance. Um, as I was saying yesterday, you can have like Anatman, you can have Atman. People can, you have the people that are in the um, Shaiva or Vaishnava camp. And um, it's very tolerant of different viewpoints. You can go to God riding a bicycle or not go to God. You can stand on one leg or you can just fast. Um, you can abstain or embrace, you know. So um, the same with sort of the way that we approach any of these works is I'm not sure if we're going to solve the Indus script, but we wanted to catalyze the imagination of students out there around the world, classrooms, to think about these things. And the interesting thing in my life is that after um, my deep work with Sanskrit for about 11, 12 years, I've gone into the um, early development of language with the San and the Khoi. And it's been quite nice to kind of marry in some you know, to yoga those two worlds together, to unite them, because I keep thinking, okay, why was it like this in India? What was this plant? What was this tradition? And then I look at what the San and the Khoi, these very old people that we all came from, were doing, and I actually start to get different insights. So I think having these cross-disciplinary perspectives can be very useful for the um, Sanskritic traditions. I think it would be great going forward. So that's our story with the Indus um, script. I would love to do a field trip to um, these sites in Pakistan one day um, and also make more awareness in Pakistan of this incredible heritage and tradition that the country is holding in its borders. Fascinating, fascinating work that, uh, that you're doing on so many fronts. Um, I want to thank you for reappearing on the podcast today, and um, I doubt it'll be our last conversation. Um, thanks for sharing your work with us. Thank you so much, uh, Raj, once again, and um, have a wonderful day in Canada, and I wish you the best with this uh, incredible podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, for those of you who have been listening to uh, these perhaps riveting um, um, uh, and certainly niche conversations about so much that's foundational to uh, Indian civilizations, um, we have been speaking with Martin Gluckman, a uh, researcher at the University of Cape Town and director of Sanskrit Research Institute. All of the tools, uh, the materials, the references we've made aloud in the podcast, I will um, include in the podcast notes. Um, until next time, stay safe, stay sane, stay sane. <laughs> Keep listening. And... Uh, Keep contemplating the foundations of Indian civilization. Take care.